Greetings, listeners. This is the Paleo Protestant Podcast. We have a special edition this time. We have a guest. The first time we've done that. And our guest is Aaron Wren. And I'm reading from a website now, but he is a consultant and writer in Indianapolis, a senior fellow at the American Reformer, and a former senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Public Research. He was also a former partner at uh, Accenture. A lot of uh, formers there, but yeah. uh, you just covered essentially my three careers there: management, consulting, urban policy, and then sort of writing on uh, men's issues in the future of the church. Yeah. Um, Listeners probably know Aaron best from um, his uh, positive, neutral, negative worlds piece in First Things about a year or more ago now. And um, and that led, I think, to some useful reflection on um, church life in, in big cities in particular, but other places as well, and also some reflection on evangelicalism. Um, I'm going to link to some things in the um, the website for this recording uh, to some of Aaron's other work, um, particularly um, a piece that he did on uh, the Protestant establishment and E. Digby Baltzell, a sociologist who studied uh, WASP America, which is really smart. And there was also a, a great interview I heard with you about that piece at the, I can never say it right. Nick, this Niskansen center. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know exactly how you pronounce it either. Niskanen, something like that. That's that, how I right. pronounce it, but I could kind be wrong. The, the, the Jeffrey renegade, Kava service. You did, right. Did that the renegade yeah. to Cato, I guess, um, people that's where they went. But, um, so I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're not in, uh, a conversation partner of a lot of, um, Presbyterians, Reformed, or Anglican, I don't think. I, you seem to talk more to evangelicals, which is, and even some Roman Catholics. But anyway, it's good to have you on here to talk about what you do, uh, ways in which um, confessional Protestants relate to your work. And also, maybe we can get some advice from you about how to make confessional Protestants better. But f- let's start off with... Um, so w- tell us more about American Reformer and this, this, the stuff you're doing now about men and church life and all the above. Well, American Reformer is a Protestant nonprofit uh, that I co-founded uh, in part to be the hopefully the intellectual home for figuring out how the church should adapt to what I call the negative world, which is the world we now live in the post-2014 world, in which for the first time in really the 400-year history of America, Christianity, uh, uh, certainly of an orthodox variety, is viewed negatively by sort of official culture and elite society. And to be known as a Bible-believing Christian and a good church-going man actually hurts you in the elite domains of society rather than helps you. And, uh, you know, I I, uh, helped develop this because I really didn't see a good, and part of it was to scratch my own itch. It's like the classic startup is I did not see a good institutional home for me to do uh, the work that I was doing on the on the future of the church. You know, I used to work for you know, the Manhattan Institute's conservative think tank, but it's pretty aggressively secular. Uh, I think that's true of the vast majority of sort of the conservative political think tanks. They tend to not be super interested in religion. 
And, you know, with some exceptions, Heritage is a little more social conservative. You know, the major, you know, major institutions there are pretty, uh, they're more socially liberal than even they let on, I think has mm. been my my experience. Uh, and, you know, Conservatism Inc. is very, very Catholic slash Jewish dominated. Certainly on the, on the Christian wing is very Catholic dominated. Uh, very little evangelical influence there at all. And it's not, uh, so there's not really great, although I like many of those institutions and I'm delighted to still do work for them on certain projects. Wasn't a good home. But then, you know, again, most of the uh, evangelical institutions were also, uh, you know, kind of representatives of positive, what I call positive and neutral world uh, America, which was sort of the the, the environments we're coming out of. And so we, we created this. So we have a, a few things. We have a journal uh, that uh, we publish at AmericanReformer.org uh, with uh, a lot of work. Uh, you know, right now it's been very hope, heavily focused on political theory, but we've, we've got one up today from Scott Yenner. It's a review of Mary Harrington's book uh, on, um, you know, feminism. And so we talk a lot about gender issues. I, I want us to hit all the big ones, you know, mm-hmm. race, gender, all of it, politics. Uh, yeah, but hopefully from a very serious perspective, then we also uh, have a fellowship program, the Cotton Mather Fellows, which is for um, young, um, young evangelical slash reform types. And then um, we, uh, uh, you know, we also do reform work where we sort of partner with people, uh, stakeholders and in different institutions who uh, either are looking for help in transitioning to uh, uh, to get them fit for the negative world or who are concerned about drift to help them uh, figure out what to do. So that's sort of a the three main things that we do currently, and it is it is sort of big tent Protestant. Um, you know, there are a lot of Presbyterians uh, involved, but also some some Southern Baptists and e- even some Lutherans uh, in there. Scott <laughs> Scott Yenner is a Lutheran. Uh, we got the Lutherans to actually uh, say hi to other people. That's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> and uh, and I'm you know I, I, my aspiration is that we actually get some mainline Protestants in there as well. So just just quickly, just to follow up on that, um, I mean, of the think tank world and and religion, for instance, I do think of, say, ethics and public policy um, in in D.C. I mean, could could there ever be a hostile uh, mergers and acquisitions between EPPC and American Reformer? I mean, would. How do you distinguish? It's not. It's a, yeah. a stupid well, it's way of said. asking. How do you distinguish yourself from from what they do? Even though they're they're multi-denominational yeah. or multi-church, but they do have an evangelical wing. Yeah, they they sort of actually their evangelical wing is is you know kind of think more relative you know more relatively new. I I really like EPPC. Uh, I love Ryan Anderson, who's the president there. Uh, he is. Yeah. Um, he just spoke here at Hillsdale. Yeah, a couple he of- is. Uh, you know, very, very fearless Catholic. Uh, there, uh, obviously, but uh, you know, I think he has really sought to, you know, reinvigorate that uh, organization. Uh, you know, my impression, and again, this is this is just Aaron's outside impression, is that uh, EPPC had kind of been a, um, you know, uh, sort of a a place. For like, you know, it wasn't a place that like people were known from being for EPPC, you know, like mm-hmm. certain people are known for being AEI scholars. Other people right. were known for being whatever. And it was sort of a place for people who sort of had secondary affiliations or they were sort of in between other other gigs. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, it wasn't really like uh, you know, sort of a, a primary organization in its own right. I think it had kind of uh, faded a little bit. Um, and so, uh, you know, maybe maybe if it were uh, if we were starting today, I would be uh, calling up Ryan and saying, hey, Ryan, you know, is this is there a possibility for me to do work there? Uh, but ended up going going a different direction. That, But I really like Ryan and uh, yeah. and what they're doing. One of the things I don't, what I, again, I'm speaking for myself, uh, you know, not on behalf of Minnesota American Reformer here, but I think one of the things that we really want to do is be a specifically Protestant institution, mm-hmm. uh, because so often I think in these conservatism Inc. institutions, uh, you know, yes, there even where there's evangelical I- inclusion, it's not really, you know, it's shaped by a Catholic sensibility uh, or sort of, you know, some. C- Evangelicals or Protestants are kind of second fiddle. It's like the same thing at First Things. I mean, I'm delighted to be associated with First Things. I'd love to continue writing there. And uh, whatever they would tell you, you ask anyone, and they're going to tell you First Things is a Catholic magazine, basically. And, you know, and so yes, there's evangelicalism there. And, and the fact that it's a Catholic magazine is actually wonderful in the sense that, you know, they'll publish dissident Protestant thought in a way that a lot of these other institutions probably wouldn't. You know, probably they would publish they would publish my three worlds of evangelicalism or say probably Christianity today would not have published it. Uh, but nevertheless, we want you know, I want us to have like an institution of our own uh, that yeah. is not that is not just a sort of generic Judeo-Christian uh, sort of uh, thing, but really tries to to specifically talk to the world from a Protestant perspective, although sort of, as I say, a big tent Protestant perspective. All right. Um, I forgot to mention and apologize to my co-hosts, Corey Moss and Miles Smith, who are who are here with us. <laughs> and I still, see them. <laughs> they're still teaching history at Hillsdale College, and one of them is still on Twitter. Um, but, um, but anyway, you guys want to just ask a question in relation to this introductory uh, comments from Aaron before we get into s- – what I I had scripted out for what we would talk about, but, but by all means interject whenever you want. And I, but if you want to follow up with anything Aaron just said there, please do. Uh, well, I'll just, I'll just put a brief plug in for, for something that, that Aaron wrote for the American reformer uh, a couple of years ago now titled evangelicalism, second class status in conservatism, mm. yeah. which is a really nice summary of, of some of the stuff that's just been said about um the sort of divisions and, and parties uh, in American conservative institutions. Um, I, very, very helpful. Yeah. I, I, well, uh, thank you. Um, I've been pretty familiar Aaron, with your work. I think we've linked, linked to each other's stuff a good bit yeah, yeah. Uh, in the past. So it's good to actually make the real acquaintance. Uh, Daryl, I don't have any interesting question that you probably don't already have uh, since I've liked Aaron for longer than any of you. Uh, that's what I'm going to tell myself. <laughs> uh, so, uh, why don't we you, go you, you, you liked him back into the new, in the neutral world. Yeah. I liked him back in neutral world <laughs> when, I, when I was uh, reading all the Manhattan Institute stuff. So uh, yeah. Aaron, none of you for a long time. Uh, my dad's college roommate went to Redeemer and I spent a lot of my childhood or childhood, my, my high school years kind of really enjoying the New York city of neutral world. Um, mm-hmm. I watched uh, you've got mail. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just, the uh, the dry cleaner I went to is the one that's uh, featured in that apparently. Yeah, and, uh, wow. it's, uh, so I was right in my neighborhood there. It's you know, so I love cool. the neutral world. I'm by nature yeah. a neutral world guy. Actually, that's me. 
And I think that's what drew me to you is I, yeah. I find myself kind of a dispositionally a neutral world guy. But what's so interesting is how much of a relic 1998 New York City is. Uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a line. I thought about you, Aaron, when I heard this line. There's a character who describes the shop around the corner as having a Jeffersonian purity. And this mm. was seen as uh, a, a civic virtue in 1998 New York. And I was wondering if in 2023... New York City, if I was to walk around and describe anything as having Jeffersonian virtues, first of all, if anybody would understand, and second of all, if anybody would think that's a good thing. Um, so uh, I've been excited to have you on. So Daryl, why don't you, why don't you get to the, your, your more interesting questions, I'm sure. So, Well, well let me also just say one more way, thing by way of in- introduction, which is that um, uh, if, if, I don't know, I, I don't think there's a wide overlap of a Venn Van diagram between the confessional Protestant world and urbanism or new urbanism. Uh, I wish there were more of that. Um, I mean, I think confessional Protestants, a lot of Protestant denominations more generally are in the suburbs and there's nothing wrong with the suburbs. I mean, they, they suburbs can have certain kinds of appeal, but if you are interested in urban developments, you really should follow Aaron and we'll put his um, Twitter feed or handle whatever in um, in the so-called show notes. But right, and the most um, important thing is to make sure you go to AaronRen.com right now and sign up for my newsletter. Okay, <laughs> I got to put that plug in there. there. That's our sponsor this week. There you go. Right. That's it right there. <laughs> we've had some in, in previous episodes. We've had some some fake sponsors. Um, anyway, so you're, you're interested in Protestant intellectuals. I, I, I've seen that in 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 a number of different places. Um, and I think the word Protestant is, is intriguing and useful and much to be applauded because the word evangelical really doesn't give you a kind of specificity, even though it would seem to appear to be Protestant. And of course it is historically, but it's, it's a more generic kind, although even more specific kind of Protestant. Anyway, Protestant says something that evangelical doesn't, but still aside from that, you're interested in Protestant intellectuals and uh, you're interested in conservatism. And yet Protestant intellectuals have not been prominent in conservative circles. And yet, yeah. you know, so what, what do you think needs to happen? And, and this relates to your piece that Corey mentioned about evangelicals being second class yep. uh, citizens in, in the conservative world or, and maybe beyond that. But I mean, do you think Protestant intellectuals are out there and how, how do you plan to cultivate them? Yeah, it's, it's, that's a very great question. That's a very deep and long question. And I'm not sure that I fully have (laughs) all the answers on it, but certainly the lack of intellectualism in sort of the evangelical Protestant world, which by the way, I tend to define evangelicalism uh, very similar to the uh, the social science survey model. If you're a Protestant, you're either mainline black Protestant or evangelical. That's really how I sort of think about it. Mm. I think of it less about the theological positions and distinctives and more sociologically and in that sort of way. Uh, but you know, there was the famous book, The Scandal, The Evangelical Mind, and uh, – you know, I think that it's kind of kind of long been known that, you know, evangelicals and sort of conservative Protestants don't have a great intellectual 
tradition. Um, I don't think they ever had a great intellectual uh, tradition. Uh, you know, one of the one of the weaknesses of of that book, the the scandal, of the evangelical mind, is this kind of inconsistent definition of who's an evangelical fundamentalist. You know, somebody like Machen or some of the people who you would probably classify as more confessionalist Protestants, sort of are in early in the book, and then towards the end of the book, they're kind of out uh, a little bit, and so. Uh, I think it's really hard to come up with that, but I do seem to see that that since that Protestantism has been, uh, you know, very um, socioeconomically and even somewhat ethnically racially stratified in the United States, mm. and that uh, it was, you know, once common. There's many quips uh, about this, you know, that you know, as people move up in society, they change denominations. <laughs> that you know, you might start off a Baptist. There was this one I read from. Uh, it's it's in uh, Richard Brookheiser's book, The Way of the Wasp, and I haven't, um, I, I, I I'm not going to get it correctly, but it's like you, you start off a ba- somebody starts off a bass Baptist, they become a Methodist when they get their first white collar job, they become a Presbyterian when they get their first promotion, and they become an Episcopalian when they retire from the board of directors, <laughs> and so that that is uh, that is sort of a, you know there's variations on that that sort of quip, and so. The people who were highly accomplished in their fields, not just economically, but intellectually, tended to get pulled into these mainline denominations. And so, um, you know, I think there is there's probably constantly a drain of any intellectuals out of these denominations that today are associated with evangelicalism, like the Southern Baptist Convention, for example. So that's probably one. And then a lot of the because we were a Protestant country. And to you know, to a great extent, still are, um, you know, kind of the mainstream institutions of society were essentially the Protestant institutions of society, in a sense, you know, like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, for example, and the essentially disestablishment of Protestantism, you know, rendered essentially created essentially a, an institutional gap and sort of uh, so. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of issues there around that. Um, I think the decline of the mainline denominations play, plays a big role there. Uh, but I, it's one that I think there, there should be a lot of study on it. And we need to um, think about how to create a, you know, some type of a, a leadership culture and an intellectual culture within the evangelical world, which, again, in my classification would include, you know, confessionally Protestant denominations like the PCA. I attend a PCA church mm. and uh, also, um, you know, all, you know, so it would, it would include that, but also I think in society at large, it's, it's been remarked upon. And this is one of the great themes of Digby Balsall's work, this decline in leadership. Where are the leaders? Like where are the people of high integrity and competence coming into government? And, you know, we sort of lost, I think we lost something profound with the sort of uh, decline of the mainline denominations, the dis- disestablishment of Protestantism and things of that nature. And I don't think that can come back or necessarily should it, should it come back, but we have to find a way to regenerate those things for the benefit of our society. And also, you know, for the benefit of the church itself. I mean, again, I think, especially as we come into this negative world, the idea that, uh, sort of conservative Protestants or Protestants of any kind can just look to secular intellectuals to 
you know, or are these other intellectuals or Catholic intellectuals to set their direction? I just don't think is a is a viable strategy. So um, I do not, you know, I come from a consulting background. My three worlds of evangelicalism um, framework is a consulting framework, <laughs> you know, so it is not an academic framework. I am not an academic. I don't claim to be a scholar in an academic sense. I don't claim to be a pastor, you know, or a theologian, um, you know, but I, I do have these this expertise in sort of consulting type analysis, uh, you know, as well as sort of journalism skills. And so I'm trying to bring that to bear. Uh, and uh, like a lot of um, like a lot of consultants and maybe like the Generation X person that I am, it's not necessarily uh, as much about I want to be the leader who takes over the organizations and and personally reshapes them, but I want to help the people who are running our organizations, help people to un- better understand the world and think about how they can, you know, start start regenerating this this sort of a this sort of a culture. Well, it it does seem to me on on the matter of <clears throat> Protestant intellectuals um, that. Um, for instance, the the current book of the month, um, several months now. Stephen Wolf is it? Stephen Wolf, Christian. Yeah. Stephen um, Wolf, the case for Christian nationalism. Yeah, right. I mean, wh- when Protestants become serious about politics and and varieties of conservatism, they wind up going back to all sorts of Protestant sources prior to. 1789, when Protestants, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, Anglican, um, I'm not Roman Catholic, sorry, uh, Reformed, um, could, you know, we're reading Aristotle still, they were reading Aquinas, Augustine, um, they, they were, they were parts of, uh, state churches oftentimes, and so I had to think about politics. But, um, after the, the revolutions of the late 18th century, and with the rise of evangelicalism and with conservative Protestants being oriented more in that direction, but also with the kind of segregation of politics and, and church life, um, the world of conservatism seems to be dominated, as you say, by Roman Catholics who can do the political theory and keep that tradition of, of, um, discussion alive. And you mentioned your own work in, in policy. That sort of analysis, and you mentioned the Jewish w- world, but the neocons came along and kind of educated some of the Roman Catholic conservatives. There's a great documentary um, uh, about the neocon um, Jewish intellectuals called "Arguing the World," and there's a clip. That's in there. a great documentary. Oh, I highly it's, recommend it's, it. it's phenomenal, it's incredible. But there's a great clip in there of William F. Buckley talking about, well, we kind of knew the theory, but we didn't really know the social science and how to analyze government and government programs that way, the way that Glazer and Bell and others came along and could do that. So there's that range of analysis. You've got social sciences, you've got the political theory, and evangelicals haven't been well known for engaging in those spheres of life. And I would say probably confessional Protestant intellectuals aren't either. I mean, we can do Protestant confessional Protestant intellectuals are really good at dogmatic theology, systematic theology, exegesis, church history, but they don't go into the worlds of policy or political theory. 
Um, and they have the tools intellectually to do that sort of work, but it would require a lot of of, of different kinds of training. And it would I also, think it's. I, mean, um, I was going to say, I think you, if you look back, there were some like really top flight Protestant scholars like Digby Baltzell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he would have, he would have identified he he certainly identified as a wasp, you know, as a member of this sort of mainline high status elite. He was critical of them, but he was a formidable scholar. Peter Berger, you know, the Lutheran sociologist, yeah. Yeah. you know, um, he, he was quite formidable. And but what you know what I see today is like the people who are sort of Protestant intellectuals. Uh, Unlike the you know, Catholics often center their Catholic identity in what they do. Um, you know, I think, you know, even a guy like Biden is more self-consciously Catholic uh, than a lot of, you know, Protestants are Protestants. So, so you take a guy like James Davison Hunter. James Davison Hunter is, again, a formidable intellect and remarkably in, smart I mean, when I go back and read his books from the, he wrote a couple books about evangelicalism in the 1980s. So stunningly insightful and prescient, hmm. uh, incredibly, uh, incredibly powerful analysis. Uh, I'm told, and I think people assume that he is some kind of evangelical Protestant. I have never seen James Davison Hunter ever personally state that he has any religious faith. Um, and that's, uh, I'm glad, but looking for it. In fact, when I, you know, when I, I, my three worlds of evangelicalism was originally, uh, a newsletter thing that I wrote in 2017. I, I sort of came up with it or kind of the, the, the germ of it in 2014. And, and when I was updating it for first things magazine, I'm like, well, you know, I better go kind of like more rigorously fact check this stuff. You know, you go, as you go up in the hierarchy of like publication formats, you need to be more rigorous. I went searching to see why, because I listed James Davison Hunter as an example of a neutral world Christian and that first one. And I, I couldn't find it. And like, it's really remarkable that here's a guy who really is smart and uh, somehow, assuming he's a Protestant. Well, he went to I, Gordon. He went to Gordon College. I mean, and, and yeah, I, so it's like, you know, there's, a lot, of, there's fr- a lot of I have a friend who say was- hide it. But who was it, it, who? They were they were they were uh, colleagues. They were peers at Gordon College, and I mean, I and I also I know more about James than I should, even though I haven't been in touch with James in a long time, and and it, I sort of know some about his whereabouts in, in Charlottesville. But it doesn't undercut your point, which is that he yeah, like, doesn't talk about. He it. does not center Protestantism as an identity, although it's sort of a theme of his work, and you sort of you can sort of implicitly state it. I mean, even a guy like, uh, you know, Cornell West, you know, really sort of has more of a, a Christian identity in 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 his work uh, and some of these guys. So I think part of it is we we are, um, you know, uh, evangelicalism has always been kind of middle class, you know, you know, even even lower than that. And I really think there's a lot of status anxiety in the evangelical world, particularly in this neutral world, New York City. You're an evangelical in New York City. You got a ton of status anxiety. Um, you know, Baltzell didn't have any status anxiety. He was, you know, he was born into this status. And that was very one of the big themes of his work. But, uh, that, you know, I think one of the things I argue is we have to stop have being envious of sort of many of the 
status markers of the world and just being taken seriously by these people. Uh, not that I, I want to totally repudiate all of the status hierarchies of society, because obviously they exist and you have to take account of them in your actions. But, you know, you, we need to have a little more self-confidence. Now, I do think that the Roman Catholics have much more self-confidence when they put forth a Catholic perspective and in the way that they identify as Catholic. And, you know, it's um, it's uh, it's something that they've done that that. Uh, Evangelical intellectual. I'm not talking about pastors here or whatever. I'm talking about kind of like intellectuals. I just haven't seen it. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm like, who am no, I missing? I, I, I put out a call like, who are the great I, Protestant intellectuals in America today? And by intellectual, I said, you know, not a theologian, you know, not a pastor. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, we could say like Marilyn Robinson is a literary figure, you know, or Cornell West. There's a few of these people. People get. I didn't get this like great tsunami of suggestions from people uh-huh. that I somehow didn't know about. Hey, can well, I, just I mean, jump in here. Yeah, yeah go, Daryl. Since, uh, since since you mentioned Stephen Wolf, I, I don't know if you guys saw the review of his book at, at Law and Liberty yesterday or the day before. Yes. Um, one of the things I found fascinating about the review is it it drew attention to the fact that Wolf is reaching back to 17th century reformed dogmaticians and and sort of being a self-conscious confessional protestant but but the reviewer just sort of dismissed the book for that reason it's like well mm-hmm. this 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 could possibly not possibly appeal to anyone who doesn't sort of assume reformed confessional commitments um which may or may not be true but I mean, I've I've never seen a reviewer be that dismissive of someone who is grounding arguments in Catholic social theory or something like that. Uh, there, there's a sort of uh, you know generosity to to someone who is writing self consciously Catholic rather than I mean maybe this reviewer had other reasons to to dislike the book and and decided to focus on the the sort of narrow confessional Protestant aspect. But but I, I found that I found that striking i don't know, i wasn't quite sure what to do with it but that sort of thing i i can imagine would would put off you know someone who is going to try to do the same thing i'm i'm going to make an argument in the political realm but i'm going to ground it in specifically confessional protestant commitments um or or at least be much more careful about that um if there's this sense that nobody wants that or, or nobody respects that Right. I mean, it, it, uh, the thing I uh, really appreciate about this book uh, is how clarifying it's been about the reactions to be have been uh, to the book have been far more revealing than the book itself, you know, in a lot of ways in in that um, it's very clear that a lot of these sort of evangelical thinkers uh, really sort of view, you know, de facto 1965 American liberalism, as they imagine it, is their definition of the ideal regime. It is their political theology. This is what they believe the Bible basically requires. Um, really amazing stuff that that they write on this. And um, I think the fact that you know one of the characteristics of Stephen Wolf's book is he does not make any condescension to modern sensibilities whatsoever. <laughs> It's just like I'm putting out what I believe and I'm not using any weasel words. I'm not trying to soften it. I'm just going to very directly say X. And, uh, you know, so that sort of gets people going. And I do think, you know, we sort of find out what what people kind of really think politically. And 
And again, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, um, you know, I, I think it's very clear a lot of sort of modern Protestant thinkers explicitly now, I mean, it's very clear they reject Reformation theology, uh, you know, in a lot of ways that that whole our evangelicalism today is not a continuation of that project. It is in great measure a rejection of that project. Um, and I think that's we can we can see it uh, in some of the responses to that book. I, I think you're keen to, to go. I didn't read the Law and Liberty review, but uh, Law and Liberty is based uh, right right down the street from me. So I got to be careful what I say. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, here, the thing about. Uh, Can I jump Wolf's, in, Daryl, at some point? I, I, I yeah. want to a question. But, but um, I, I just, I, I want to, I mean, part of what struck me and if Wolf had published with, we, and we don't want to spend a lot of time on Christian nationalism because that's not what we're here to talk about, but it, it does relate, I think, to institutions and how to, how to uh, evaluate and assess institutions and the degree to which Protestant intellectuals, confessional or evangelical think in terms of institutions. Um, but the nations are a certain political form that a lot of reformed thinkers prior to 1789 weren't thinking about nation states in the same way. I mean, the Lutherans have their experience with it after the Peace of Westphalia, but, um, and I've I've just been struck by thinking about nations. There's been a lot of literature in the last eight, nine years that I've been following, and it became more ratcheted up after Trump's election in 2016 about nationalism and its dangers and whatnot. And from what I've been able to see, I don't think Wolf interacts with some of that literature and sort of position, positions himself within it. Now, again, if he had published with somebody else other than Canon Press, an editor might have said, you need to also interact with John Judas and, and um, Joe Lepore and some other people. I mean, uh, Yoram Hazoni, maybe he does with Hazoni. But, um, <clears throat> but it also goes to this question that, as far as status goes, related to institutions. I mean, Lutherans were thinking about institutional life and doing some kind of policy analysis. And you brought up Berger, and one of his colleagues in that endeavor was Richard John Newhouse back when he was a Lutheran. <clears throat> Maybe not a good Lutheran, I know, I know, Corey, <laughs> but still, their work on mediating institutions is really Im- important. And I mean, one of the reasons why it seems to me evangelicals in New York City may be thinking about in terms of status is because they, we don't have institutions that are of a, of a caliber as other institutions. And I mean, there was a time when Hunter was writing his books in the, in the eighties to go back to that point when evangelical scholarship, the evangelical mind was going, they were getting lots of funding from Lilly and Pew. And it was possible for people to talk about being an evangelical scholar and, and, you know, recovering the evangelical mind and whatnot. And it's surprising that in that context, Hunter himself wasn't, wasn't, uh, engaging with it as much. But those institutions that the evangelical mind, um, created, for instance, books and culture is gone. The Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals at Wheaton College, which I directed briefly, is gone. So evangelicals themselves, even though even at the colleges, they don't invest in institutions and see the benefit of continuing those institutions. And those institutions themselves are going to have trickle down effects long term. I mean, instead, 
the flavor of the month among evangelicals for the last 30, 40, well, 20, 30 years has been megachurches, celebrity pastors, internet ministries, parachurch stuff. And that stuff is really ephemeral. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very, everything is very focused around, um, you know, let's, let's preach the gospel and save souls. And uh, that's, you know, that's, you know, there's, there's very little about, you know, and maybe we'll run some, you know, ministries for poverty relief and things like that, but it's, um, it's not, it's not the kind of institutional thinking, um, and that you, you saw in the old mainline churches. Right. Miles, you were going to say something. Yeah. So, so Aaron's point about confidence is something I've thought a lot about, um, So I think some of this conversation, the disagreement between evangelicals and politically uh, sort of people doing political theology and sort sort of so much of it just seems goofy to me that there's even a disagreement. And the reason why I think is because I'm not from the Northeast. I'm not from California. I'm not from the urban Midwest. My formative adult years were in South Carolina. And a lot of the political leadership in South Carolina is from quote unquote, confessional denominations. So the governor of South Carolina right now is an ARP ruling elder, um, which is a Presbyterian denomination in full communion with the OPC and the PCA. Um, Several senators were PCA guys. Jim DeMint's a PCA ruling elder. Um, Other, our lieutenant governors were in the diocese that's now ACNA. Um, So the idea that there would be sort of like a concern that confessional Protestant people were exercising political power, the, the, the fact that this would even be a question is completely ridiculous because it would almost be like, well, are, are we supposed to give it to someone? Do we go find like Pentecostals? They're underrepresented. Maybe make them like, like the, the fact that this is a question is, is, is kind of more a testament to geographies and sociologies than sort of universal principles because no one in South Carolina is bothered that, for example, an LCMS guy is a, is a, is a, um, was a, uh, was a U.S. rep at one point. So no right. one worries about that. And, and the reason why is because I think it's just more this understanding that, well, yeah, we, we kind of have evangelical commitments, but there's no sort of division between, say, acting in the kind of a mainline fashion. I think of Sean Lucas's is history of the PCA when it's kind of founded, that's essentially founded to be this kind of hybrid evangelical and mainline denomination. So I wonder, Aaron, like, is, is, is there a point when some of this is just people talking past each other and they're kind of doing academic work when they should just be talking about like, is that, is there any chance that's what's going on? Yeah. I mean, it could be, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I I don't really, I think there there is something in the negative world. You know, Wolf. Uh, I think Wolf is some. Of, he's at his best when he's when he's criticizing other people. <laughs> I think a lot of times it's easier to diagnose other people's flaws than to construct something of your own. I always say, and so I I, I do think you know he sort of views evangelicals uh, as engaged in a product uh, a project of essentially denaturing their movement to make it politically impotent and no threat to sort of elite societies such that it will then achieve some measure of toleration, you know, and this talk about Christian nationalism basically 
is the exact opposite of that project. And therefore they don't like, they don't like this thing because it sort of interferes with their idea of essentially making evangelicalism, you know, safe to be tolerated in New York city and places like that. So whether that's totally accurate, uh, they, but I think there is something to this that we see the way that people talk today. There's a tremendous sort of thematic idea of Christians shouldn't exercise power. You know, it's about, uh, you know, loving your neighbor and, you know, it's almost like this, you know, you're grabbing, you know, you're grabbing the one ring and trying to use it. There's, there's almost a sort of a delegitimization of seeking any sort of power or authority um, that I think, you know, you could see is being aligned with the idea of uh, let's not make ourselves like the religious right. Let's just let these elite people know that we are not threatening the way they're running the world and they will kind of allow us to to live a little bit. So I do think there's, you know, that's somewhat maybe one strategy for the uh, the negative world that, um, you, you know, this very muscular talk about, about Christian nationalism, which, uh, you know, at one level, it's almost like ridiculous. I mean, Christianity has never been less influential than it has been today. It's like it's like Catholic integralism. It's like, well, you know, when the Pope is the rightful head of the, the country, I'm like, what are we talking about here? We're like <laughs> on the we're like we are we are nowhere near. Uh, you know, should we tolerate the Baptists? You know, kind of it's like, well, uh, you know, we're we're in a very we're we're in a very theoretical construct. But I do think it's it is important in this sense that um, you know how you come down on some of these issues does determine how you engage uh, with with society, and I think to some extent there's been a, a sort of a, a reaction, uh, and this this happens in, in conservatism, political conservatism every so often. A group like the New Right from the late '70s comes along and says the other guys failed; they didn't conserve anything. We're going to be revolutionaries. We're going to overthrow the system. And then they kind of come along and, and do that. And so um, I think we're in a little bit of one of those phases now, both in sort of political conservatism with the Hazoni, maybe the Hazoni movement and sort of the religious conservatism, uh, where there's a sense that the uh, the older generations were sort of too, too uh, wishy-washy. And so they want to, they want to, it's, it's a little bit of a reaction against that. They want to be a little more muscular and how they present things. and. Um, you know, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that and that I think we need to be much less concerned about, you know, uh, uh, saying words and phrases and attuning everything just right to make sure, you know, the secular people are not so so uh, off on it. Uh, but then I think there's this other group of people who are like, look, we essentially need to, um, you know, th- th- this kind of religious right, combative engagement. Uh, it needs to go because that's that's a loser, which you know to some extent they're right about that, and it's it it makes us it just puts a target on our back that we're going to get crushed. Uh, so I think some of these theoretical constructs are really as much about how people practically engage today <clears throat> as they are, um, you know, some of these theoretical issues. Well, and it could could also be a reason why then Protestants. This isn't the only reason, but still a factor in Protestant conversions to Roman Catholicism, because you have many more outlets, channels, support in Roman Catholic circles for engage, being engaged in politics and policy in a, in a 
explicitly Christian manner or right. Roman Catholic manner than you do uh, among um, Protestants or evangelicals. Um, yeah, you know, you 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 get kind of a network, right? You get a network and a tribe <clears throat> and a, you know, there's a lot of money in in that. And, um, you know, there's all these, you know, these groups like Opus Dei, you can join Opus Dei and you can, you have like this like fraternal society now you're a part of. And you're, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of things, uh, you know, and I, 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 uh, I admire a lot about what the Catholics have done. There's, there's probably something, something to that as well. What's wrong with the Elks? <laughs> um yeah so you you mentioned earlier you know, to be honest i do think some of those old um organizations um maybe there's opportunities to uh to reinvigorate uh oh to, no i think that i think that they've is. got some of a yeah. lot of these guys have like strategic properties and they've got uh you know uh a lot of other things and so uh you know i'm not uh you know i've uh i, I moved to a new new town in this re in this area and so now i'm thinking i i'm right around the corner from the lions club i'm like maybe i huh. should go check out the lions yeah. club i mean we just in the history department here we we've added some readings to our heritage reader and one of the uh essays is a is uh from robert putnam on bowling alone and i actually think it got a fair bit of traction among the students here who read it and you know but that's that's a argument for the, the associational life, civil society that's that's out there beyond government or whatnot, and elks and lions and those sorts of clubs fall right into it. I mean, if you have a very busy church schedule, it might be hard to be as vigorous a member of those organizations. But, um, well, you know, so, like the Catholics have like the Knights of Columbus, for example. They got something right. you can do that's very much like that within within the church structure. Right. I mean, I, I go to these Catholic fish fries during a Lent, and I'm always like, you go to these things, and my wife is like, man, it, it looks like it's fun to be a Catholic. It's good to be a Catholic. This is extraordinarily wholesome. Do they have? Uh, you know, do they serve alcohol? Uh, typically not. No. Yeah, I, I wondered. Um, not um, that I've seen at any rate. Maybe maybe some other people have it. Yeah, it depends that. on the function. I mean, I follow the yeah. um, Cardinal O'Malley. Is that his name from Boston? Archbishop, I follow his blog, and he posts all sorts of of um, meals that he's been to during the week. And some of those meals, full bar, lots of wine on tables, and some of those are just more like cafeteria, sparkling water sorts of things. But um, but but way back well, you, when, when your uh, your buddy Gresham Machen was a teetotaler. Yeah, although I I, I write that off in part to prohibition, but. Um, but also Victorian sensibilities. Um, back in your introduction, um, you mentioned the work you're doing is for the church. I you did use that line. I'm not trying to hold you hold hold you to something, but how do you think you could help confessional Protestant denominations? I mean, it even maybe that's too big a question. Maybe, or it isn't just a confessional Protestant thing. Are denominations even? institutions mm -hmm. worth preserving have they have they run out of gas i do worry about this actually yeah. and is there a way to reinvigorate denominations but i'm just curious about your work as a as a consultant yeah. and analyzing society and its yeah. institutional forms and even its urban suburban and rural well, forms how do you how do you define confessional protestantism 
Well, it w- it's um, churches that do hold to confessions of the Reformation. And those confess, so it would be Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, and there would, there would be variety of expressions of them. Mm -hmm. But those are churches that still hold to those Reformation confessions. I don't know if Corey and Miles think that's good enough. Um, and with that then means, I think for me, it's meant that confessional Protestants are not as pietistic and not as conversion driven and and Jesus in my heart driven, they're more f- comfortable with forms, litur- liturgies, et cetera. But yeah. well, let me tell you what I think of. I was thinking, you know, you had all these kind of questions that you sent me in advance talking about confessionalism. And to me, when I hear the word confessionalism, I think about essentially movements within these denominations that think that these denominations ought to take a particular stance vis-a-vis con- confessions versus other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there would be sort of like, yeah, yeah, you know, there's the confessionalist, sort of like uh, Miles talked about South Carolina, confessionalist PCA churches versus all these Northern PCA churches, which are very Kellerite um, and very evangelical, I would say. And, and so I do think some of it depends on how you define um, confessionalism and you know what I what I would say what I would like to see uh, for a denomination like the PCA um, is to essentially find a way to reclaim and, and maybe in the South some of this is still the case it's certainly not the case in the North reclaim the mainline heritage and sort of the mantle of mainline Protestantism which goes against some of what I see from sort of. Um, the people I would de- I would describe as confessionalist, because uh, I, I believe you're kind of very you know you're very um, you, you sort of hold to a sort of modern two kingdoms view yourself, right, which right. is very detaches the church from politics, you know. Or is it is it Brad Isbell? I think he's he's similar with his spirituality of the church. Right. I, I mean, my my just to say my impression when somebody calls themselves a confessionalist, they're probably a convert to their denomination, and they tend to take a point of view of wanting to have sort of a pure church that exists for the church and not that much, you know, out extended into sort of these other domains of society. Maybe that's unfair. I'm just telling you that's my observation. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would take a little bit of the opposite view of that. Uh, not in the sense that I don't think that the confessions are important. I do think that confessions are important. Um, but, uh, you know, the the sort of more mainline view in terms of you know um and maybe this maybe this kind of soft institutionalization would still work in some southern uh, places i don't know but also this idea of the leadership culture of institution creating institution shaping society leading intellectualism very much a a tradition that is confident and informs sort of reshaping the world in accordance with the creation mandate, I might put it. I would like to restore some of that self-confidence and that institutional orientation to uh, to some of these things. If you ask me, that would be one thing I, w- I would like to be able mm-hmm. uh, to do. Um, now, could, could I do that? I, I don't know that I can. I don't yeah. know that that, that, you know, I don't know that that, uh, that, that still uh, exists. Um 
I actually spent 18 months when I first uh, moved here to Indianapolis attending a mainline Presbyterian church, and I learned so much, <laughs> and I saw so many positive things uh, there that I'm like, wow, you know, it's not, and it's, it, I would describe it as, as, as an evangelical PCUSA church, you know, they believe in Jesus as the Son of God and that sort of stuff, you know, they really believe that. Um, it's not, you know, the stereotype that people have. One of the things I've learned, I started studying, um, I started like, you know, through, through now that all those services were online, I just start watching different services in these different churches. And one of the things I realized is that the average evangelicals view of a mainline denomination is completely false. Um, I mean, if you went to an Episcopal church, there's a very good chance you are not going to hear some like crazy stuff. It's just going to be a It's just going to be a liturgy, you know, and maybe it's going to be a little dull. Depending on what it is, it's like, you know, I've been to some great Episcopal services. I, I tried going to a lot of these things uh, and checking them out. And so I, I feel like a lot of people don't uh, don't really have like a, a, an insight into what's really there. But I, I think that's there's something to that that's missed that a lot of that's been missed um, in, in our society. And we need to, we need to figure out how to do that. And I think that's one of the ways that we, um, you know, we help, you know, we, we, we do actually help society. It's not just about fighting with things. It's like, we had a lot of problems in our society. It wouldn't be great if we had leaders that can actually deal with those problems. And um, you know, the, the church I was attending here was actually the church that Mitch Daniels attended. And uh, he attended this basically his whole life. I think he, he he moved to town when he was 10 years old. So he's been going there since he was 10. And like, there's a guy that just has an entirely different mindset towards leadership than your average evangelical Protestant. He's like, he comes to Purdue. He's like, what do I got to do to transform Purdue University to make this thing relevant and thriving for the 21st century in this world? And he just set about doing it. And I, I mean, like evangelical type people do not think that way. We need people who think that way. And that sort of, I think the fact that he was formed in a mainline tradition um, is one of the reasons that he has that sort of view towards institutions and the way that he thinks about things. Corey, you were trying to say something. Well, or Yeah, no, I, I just, I, I, on the, the nature of confessionalism, it, I, this kind of comes full circle to something that we've talked about frequently. Um, when, we, when you talk about evangelicalism and, and even in the positive world, these sort of two wings of evangelicalism, the, the, the more fundamentalist, which is a, a little more obsessed with doctrinal purity and therefore willing to, to retreat from engagement with the broader culture and one of the questions that we've batted around is, you know, to, to what extent are confessional churches or to what extent is confessionalism fundamentalist or at least fundamentalist adjacent? Um, and, and I think that in sociological terms, that there, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I, I, sh I guess I should speak for my own tradition. I mean, you know, the Missouri Synod, I mean, St. Louis, St. Louis is a great city, but it's, I mean, it's, it's not Boston. It's not Los Angeles or San Francisco. It's not even Chicago. It's, it's a little bit of a backwater. And given the, the ethnic, ethnicity and language issues, we, we've always been sort of outsiders and, and cultivated that. Um, so I wonder if this is just part of the problem that, that we're part of a Protestant tradition that doesn't really have a history of behaving like the main line. Um, yeah, it could be. I mean, you know, the Lutherans are kind of their own kind of animal 
uh, you know, in terms of how they how they yeah, do things. Yeah, the Anglicans have a very different right. History. The Anglicans and the Reformed, I think, were very uh, different. In fact, you could you know you could argue that like the Anglicans are really should count under the Reformed. Uh, I think you know tradition. If you take the broadest definition of Reformed, um, yeah, you know, I think part of it. You know, I, I read um, uh, uh, Gary Norris uh, Cross Fingers, uh, <laughs> which is you know Gary's an interesting character to say the least. But he really put his finger on some very interesting things. And one of them was the idea that even the conservatives could not fully affirm the confession anymore because they had abandoned certain doctrines. Uh, maybe the example, I think he used six day creationism as the example. And maybe that wasn't maybe that wasn't right. But there is a sense that like the reality is nobody truly fully holds to the regulative principle of worship anymore. You know, in that sense, you know, we're not uh, fining people who celebrate Christmas and kind of thing, you know, like the like the Puritans would have done. And so there is the sense and, and especially when the, you know, the thing about the, the, you know, the Catholics really understand this idea of a cradle Catholic versus a, um, you know, a convert. And, you know, the converts, again, the more conservative people are often converts and they're really holding firm to the catechisms and the things because, it's not in their bones. It's not a living tradition in the sense that, you know, the cradle Catholics are often doctrinally lax, you know, to some extent we would say, but to them, you know, Catholicism isn't a, a set of propositions. It's a, it's a lived, it's a lived thing. It's the culture that they've, they've been in. And that's one, one of the things that I just, you know, again, most people who are, uh, Presbyterians, you know, and certainly in the North, they're all converts. Like I grew up in an Assemblies of God church, so I can read the Westminster Confession of Faith, and um, you know, I, I can say I, I support that and different things. But at the end of the day, like I'm not, you know, and that's one of the things I took away from this um, this this mainline experience, and that you know, these mainliners, they're the ones that are left. They're the super loyal. There's a lot of people who've been there like four generations. Uh, and it really was kind of reminding me like, wow, this is really the first real church that I've attended that has a history that goes back 170 years of like real continuous history there. And these people like this isn't this isn't the, the confession uh, is not um, is not just a document to them. The, the confession is the lived experience of being in a Presbyterian church and all of the, you know, ways that you go through the bureaucratic procedures and you, the way that you elect your elders. And like, you know, it's not just about, you know, I read, it's like, it'd be like me reading Robert's rules of order, you know, and I could learn that, but I didn't grow up with, but they grew up with it. And there's something, um, you know, there's something profound about having a community of people who all grew up in a particular tradition. Benjamin Mabry, uh, who also, who like Wolf has a PhD from LSU in political science, he makes this point about, you know, the constitution of America is like the conservatives love to talk about the constitution. He's like, that's one way to think about it, but the constitution is us. You know, you could take that constitution and give it to another country and they could, they could try to execute it, but it wouldn't be the same country because it's, it's, it's our lived experience of being American that is the real constitution of our country. And there I think there is a sense of that in these in these things as well. And 
the Catholics are very attuned to these dynamics, particularly since there are still large numbers of cradle Catholics who a lot of them kind of roll their eyes at the converts, you know, who come in and are next thing you know, they're the leading integralist of the day sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of our a lot of our challenges are that our uh, you know, Lutherans are different, obviously, but, you know, a lot of the in the north, I mean, these PCA churches, virtually no one grew up Presbyterian. I think I think ACNA has the exact same problem. Unless it's like an actual Episcopal church that left or it's a something like that. You go to these churches, it's like overwhelmingly composed of converts. And that is the, so I think confessionalism helps. And that's why I said earlier, my observation, it's a lot of converts who are confessionalists because the, the documents substitute for the experience of having grown up in an Episcopal church and, or grown up in a, you know, a PCUSA church or something like that. And again, maybe the PCA of the South is different. The, you know, there really are some flagship churches with multi-generational people. They're they're carrying out the traditions. I don't think you can necessarily separate um, separate the document and the text in that document from the way that it is lived in these churches. Now, I, I don't know exactly what that means, but I, I think there's some of that. And I think the fact that we are not people who came from that lived experience inclines us towards being very documentalist, um, if you will. I, I, I think there's a point to that, and and uh, we're, we're running out of time, and I don't want to keep you longer. But I, I would go back to the your point that you're making now, and I don't know that it's the case that someone who has is a cradle confessional. Protestant, whether Lutheran, Anglican, or Presbyterian, necessarily becomes, grows up with a sense of being responsible for society, having a sense of leadership in that society the way the mainline did. And I mean, I think, I don't think the church is, this is where my spirituality of the church view would kick in. I don't think mm-hmm. the church's responsibility is to train leaders of society. The mainline churches didn't think it was either. They had a whole collection of institutions that could do that so you send your kids to princeton or harvard and they get a big dose of it there it was one element of a larger structure of that class of people to be sure so i think if confessional protestants are going to you know eventually produce people who are leaders they're going to have to think more about other kinds of institutions that their children can go to and and acquire those those skills, but also those networks. Um, but right. we we should um, wrap this up. We've been going about an hour. I, Miles or Corey, do you want to say anything else? And we'll give Aaron the last word. I don't know what the word would be, but we'll let, <laughs> still let him get the, the last word in. But Miles well, or Corey, why don't you? I'll, I'll just go very briefly. As I was listening to you talk, Aaron, I just realized I was weird Presbyterian. I'm Anglican now, but I don't think I would have ever become Anglican had I not moved. I moved from North Carolina where I grew up and South Carolina went to college to Texas and the PCA, which is the denomination I grew up in was so different in Texas because everybody was a Baptist in the Mm -hmm. PCA. And I had grown up in a PCA with a lot of cradle Presbyterian. I was a cradle Presbyterian. I was baptized Presbyterian. And so uh, that, that was very much my experience where it, it, the people, you know, I, I tell this story to my, to my students. Like I remember basically these, 
what would be in any other part of the South country Southern Baptist churches. But where I grew up, there were country Presbyterian churches where the elders dipped and you yeah. know, where they, you know, uh, the, that, that those habits. So that tracks very much with that, my experience. So I think there's something to that. I, I, I agree um, with Daryl. I, I, I don't, I, I think it's, it's, it's the, the church has, you know, the basic function is spiritual, but you're right. There's also this other part where they're doing, they're doing something at least historically um, with expectations of, of, at least men in the church also having some sort of um, civil affect of what, what, what their religious life le- leads to. So well, there's a reason why if you go to a Presbyterian church, the session is usually like the 10 richest guys in the church kind of yeah. thing. You know what I mean? Like it, <laughs> yeah. it does seem to work out that way. You know, we, <laughs> we say that like, you know, he who wants to be great should be the servant of all, but it turns out that the people who run these churches tend to be like the highest wattage, richest, most successful people there. Yeah. And um, I don't want to know that that's always a good thing, but, um, but yeah, I mean, this is where, this is where I don't have an answer. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm just raising questions Uh, like my Digby Baltzell article, which uh, took me longer to write than anything I have ever written ever because of the amount of heavy lifting I had to do and reading his corpus. And uh, I think it took me over a calendar year uh, to do that. And it, uh, it, it, it gives a lot of questions. It doesn't necessarily give a lot of answers. I mean, so like, unlike Stephen Wolf, who's laying out this thesis of, uh, you know, the case for Christian nationalism, I don't have something like that. Uh, But I do make some of these observations that I think are cogent, like the idea that, um, you know, a, a lot of um, you know, like the like the convert versus um, you know uh, you know raise that way kind of uh, denomination. There's certain things that come uh, that that come from that. It's um, so uh, yeah. I, I just I, I see I see these various things. I make these observations. I put them out there, but I don't necessarily have I don't necessarily have the answer. Uh, but I do think I do believe some of these sort of what seem to be arcane positions do ultimately have an an influence on how we think about the world and how we act in the world. So, you know, this this sort of modern evangelical political theology that's sort of very kind of uh, anabaptist-y, you know, power is, you know, is to be avoided, uh, all that stuff, versus, you know, uh, Stephen Wolf's more muscular approach. Um, I think which one of those you believe it, it, it nothing nothing you're doing may be strictly in accordance with that it maybe it might not be directly informing you but i do think it somewhat affects um how you engage in the world and so um these things are relevant but i don't i don't have all the answers it's like every time i i read another you know great scholar i'm like wow there's a whole other set of questions and things to think about that i'm uh you know is very uh very puzzling. Uh, and I just keep getting more pieces of the puzzle. I put some together, but then I get even more pieces. And so it's, it's not, <laughs> it, it's not easy, but I, you know, and, and um, is your table then, big enough? Yeah. We'll, we'll find out. We'll find out. And, um, you know, and that, but that's one of the things I do feel like we, you know, kind of the evangelical world has had kind of these easy pat answers, very formula driven, you know, it's not, we need to, we need to get, we need to get more serious, I think. And, um, and so that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. I'm about to say, what are my, what are my strategies has been lay this information out there 
uh, in kind of like the three worlds of evangelicalism, all my analysis, the stuff, especially the men's issues, I lay it out there. And then, um, you know, uh, the people who read it uh, are, they can't say they didn't know. They, they, they might, uh, they might disagree with it, but they're not going to be able to say, oh, I, I just didn't know that women filed 70% of all divorces. Well, they know, because I'm making sure that they know. <laughs> I'm making sure they get the minority report, you know, so that on judgment day, uh, they're not going to be able to say, oh, I didn't know any of this stuff. Well, you know it. Now you got to figure out what to do with it. That's why I can't tell people what to do, but uh, I want to make sure that they're held accountable for the information that uh, I can give them. I mean, I, I do think there's a, a tension throughout all that we, we've been talking about, and and in, in at least in my sector of Protestantism, we're good at spiritualizing or theologizing things, but thinking about the human aspects of life and all the the sciences, academics, disciplines, consultants who are studying the way that human beings live the way human beings interact without just putting a spiritual gloss on it um which is often the case i think that's something that um the spirituality of the church can feed into that that you neglect those other kinds of studies ways of looking at things looking at even the way church politics can be as much about not just the right doctrine but the the canoodling going on behind the scenes trying to get a certain position through in the church and who gets to win those debates i mean it's like city hall at times um and we don't want to think we don't want to think about the church in that way Corey, you want to say anything else in conclusion uh no because it would lead us down another long rabbit trail Uh, okay well maybe we have to have, (laughs) have aaron on again at some point but aaron i'll let you have the last word if you want to say anything else no that's good i've said a lot All right. Well, I'll bring it to a close. Thanks very much, Aaron, for being with us. And give thanks to Corey and Miles also for participating in this uh, very good conversation. I'm not sure what we accomplished, but um, we got to know each other at least and a lot of good ideas out there. And thanks to all who are listening. And we hope to hear, sorry, hope to, to, uh, to talk to you again somewhere in the near future. All right. Thanks. 